Who is that? Jazz. Bastard. <laughs> Let's do this thing. <laughs> All right, he's ready. All he's right, ready. he's got he's got a lot on his plate this weekend. So okay, we are but leftovers on Mike's plate, and he has a lot more to get to. So welcome to Jazz Bastard Podcast number sixty. I'm Pat. I'm the wildly overcommitted Mike. I'm undercommitted, man. I'm I'm committed to nothing. I'm just sitting here in my orange polar bear pants, chilling. <laughs> Listen, I have, I think as I've mentioned to you before, I teach five classes at the moment. And yes, starting in April, I will be teaching drum roll seven. Whole seven shit. classes. I'm preparing for the Anschluss that is my schedule in the coming weeks. Apparently your yeah. schedule's full of angry Germans. That's the worst kind of schedule. It is. Exactly right. So anyway, let's do this thing. All right, we'll do it. We're going to keep it short and sweet like a candy Tom Cruise. Okay. Well, you picked out four selections. We're going back to jazz after a Vocapocalypse last episode where we talked about four singers who were doing bad things to the canon and to other songs. So talk a little about the selections you made for today. So again, this is just stuff that's hit the portable music listening device recently. I routinely swap stuff out. So the four selections for today are Uncle Brad. We haven't looked at him in a little while. Brad Maldow's Art of the Trio, Volume 1 from 1997. Don Pullen's New Beginnings from 1988. Ernie Watts' Reaching Up from 1994. And then a disc of ECM. ECM does kind of selected Discs, sort of best of compilations for members of its stable. Think of like a mosaic select, except European ECM stuff. So this is from their selected recordings for the Polish trumpeter Tomasz Stanko. I don't know. I'm probably mispronouncing that. That is dated from, I don't know. I absolutely don't know. After 2001, but I don't know the exact year. So if you know the exact year, you can tell us. All Music said it was 2004. I did, on the trail out from last episode, call him Stanko, because I really have no idea. But Stanko sounds a lot more convincing. I learned something when I was cutting the outro to the last episode, which is that Feels Like Home by Diana Krall, I like it better when I play it backwards. I was thinking of outro music and said, well, let's just take a little clip of this, use the audacity filter to, to completely reverse it. And you can't understand any of the words. It's like rip, 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 rip kind of stuff. And it's great. It's a great song if you cannot understand them and it's backward. So it, it's hmm. maybe the whole album is better that way. We'll see. I, I'm going to try it someday. Just, just play the whole thing backwards. That's what you love about digital manipulation. You can do anything you want with it. <laughs> All right. Well, that's what I learned. So four selections. These are all, I'd say, pretty yeah. hardcore jazz. So who do you want to start with? Where do you want? Where do you want to go? Where do you want to go? Chronological? I don't care. Do whatever you want. Well, you let's dive in with Tomas because I think it was the toughest selection. This is a kind of a great, well, in in the sense that because it was a selected recordings from many different albums and because I didn't have any personnel, it was just kind of a contextualist dive into the very extensive career of this very talented Polish trumpeter. And I really had not listened to his stuff at all before. And so 
I didn't really have any kind of beacon or, or point to focus on other than his playing. Everything else was kind of shifting around me. There are different instruments, different approaches. There are a couple tracks here that sound very influenced by the Ornette Coleman group, but others that sound much more ECMist to me. That's yeah. not a word. ECME? Right. Probably is better. ECME to me. ECM. So with this buffet where there was like no labels on it and a foreign cuisine I wasn't familiar with, I was just kind of struggling around. I enjoyed it. It was a good recording, but I was definitely disoriented by it. So is this the only recording you have, or do you know this guy's work? I know his work a little bit. I've got two or three things by I think I have three other discs by him, all from the ECM years, although I have other things by other ECM players that I think he plays on. So Stanko, Stinko, Stanko. I'm gonna go with Stanko, Stanko. There's a there's an accent on the on the N. So I don't know what that means. I have a Polish friend who I've just sent a uh, a text to asking this person to tell me how to pronounce the name. <laughs> um, if, if this text comes through, I will report back quickly. But in any event, I'm going to go with Stanko until I hear differently. Tomasz Stanko. He's a very quirky looking dude. If you've looked at the pictures, you can find pictures of him on the internet. And he, he looks a little bit like a bug. You know, he's got these big <laughs> glasses. He's sort of small, diminutive kind of guy. He often plays in these ECM contexts with other ECM stalwarts in particular bobo stenson on piano and mm. then anders jorman on bass and tony oxley and i have that quartet on at least two other dates leosia and Latania, both of which are very highly regarded by the penguins which is why i picked them up in the first place and indeed i do i do like them i trust we should do a little um we should do a little riff someday on on the penguins and how we feel about the penguins but uh, I feel that they're somewhat trustworthy on ECM stuff. I never trust them when it comes to English jazz because I think they give all English jazz players a star too high just because, <laughs> you know, they're homers, right, you know? Yeah. They really are homers. Evan Parker is not as wonderful as they make you think he is, you know, but he's British. So so I got into Stanko through their raving about about his stuff. And the disc I like the best, I just started re-listening to it yesterday's Leosia. Um, it's very fine. So anyway, uh, yeah, this has several cuts from Leosia and Latania. I think a couple from Balladina, uh, an earlier ECM release, and then Bossa and other ballads. And a lot of these, again, like I say, feature Bobo Stenson on piano, who is his own thing, you know, his own, he's his own. I have several discs by him, and he's a very fine player. Oh, I'm getting the text. It's pronounced Tomasha, Tomash. Here we go. Last name. I'm waiting for this little, little G chat message to come through. Oh, Stanko. Well, that's easy. Tomash Stanko. Well, that's kind of what we thought. Tomash Stanko. Great. Anyway, you can cut all of this out later. And I think they have a couple of cuts where he's playing with Jan Garbarek. Um, yes. Yeah. Uh, which are pretty cool cuts, actually. So yeah, that's it's just ECM stuff, mostly with him as a leader, but I think a few side date stuff. And so there you go. That's that's kind of where I got it from and why I got interested in it. To me, it's sort of emblematic ECM stuff, isn't it, right? And it has this sort of, everything sounds like it's being played on a rainy day somewhere in a studio overlooking uh, canals in Amsterdam. It all just has this kind of gloomy, gray feel to it, which I really like. There's, there's, I kind of like that tone, that kind of feeling that, that a lot of this stuff seems to have. You're new to this. What's what's your sort of take on all of this? To me, a lot of what he plays sounds like 
late period miles, but of course he's a stronger player than late period. Everyone's a stronger player than late period miles, but he's a stronger player than late period miles. But it, it has, he has a lot of the kind of smears and note bendings and willingness to kind of be a colorist over the accompaniment and everything sort of sounds sort of echoey and, and this kind of fog laden mist shrouded landscape of gray uh, and I, I mean I really kind of uh, you have to be in the mood for this too much of this and you kind of want to slit your wrists but I really kind of like it but I'm wondering you know where this sits for you because it's not most of the songs on even on this selection are not what you'd call fleet songs are they they're not they're not up-tempo numbers for the most part they're sort of slower sort of atmospheric kinds of pieces even the ones where he's a sideman so what did you think of it? I mean, do you like this stuff? Where did you where did you come out on this? Well, I feel like I still need to get to know him better as a player. I think he strikes me as a talented guy. He is a compelling soloist, a compelling voice. He's clearly mm-hmm. got a lot going on. He's he's an important player. You can just kind of tell without necessarily being able to analyze a certain moment or something where it happens. He's he's just got a very compelling presence as a player. So I liked I like the material. He's got an interesting kind of rattling grit in his sound sometimes. Yeah. It never sounds incompetent. I mean, it, it's it, it certainly he's it's a master. It's like a little burr. It's like a little. Yeah. It's like a little burr. Yeah, yeah. And it's yeah. in his uh, tone sometimes. Yeah, exactly. I think that's ex- that's a good way of putting it. Kind of, um, it's growl is too strong. It's less than a growl. Yeah, absolutely. It's less no, than a growl and more than a murmur. But yeah, it works. So anyway. it, it seems aesthetically yeah. satisfying. It's not, uh, again, it's certainly not a sign of incompetence. It doesn't sound like he needs to empty the spit valve. It's just a very interesting sound to it. He's got a lot of presence. I, I'd say that I noticed on this album that probably my first favorites were the tracks with Garbarek, where, and I'm sure I just slaughtered his name as I did poor Stanko when I talked about Sanko, which would be Stanko. <laughs> I just kind of gave up on the clip. I said, well, I know that's wrong, but I, I'm... I'm well known for mispronouncing words. And there you really get a vibe of probably a better recorded, perhaps slightly more technically competent Ornette Coleman quartet where he's playing. And I really have not, I've heard this name for decades and I've been aware of how popular Jan Garbarek is, but I'm not really listening to his stuff. And boy, he's clearly under the spell of uh, Ornette Coleman. There's some Mm -hmm. amazing phrasing there that really, is evocative of Ornette's work. And the other thing I'd say for those tracks is they have a little bit of that free bop momentum. There's a little bit of, you know, the bass is gorgeously recorded, but there's a sense of some forward motion. I noticed, especially, you know, playing these songs in random or coming to them or coming back to this album, if I listen to the other ones, that a lot of them are kind of floaters, right? Yeah. The drum is not laying down a steady rhythm. There's a lot of kind of atmosphere. There's a lot of kind of hovering. There's a lot of echo. And I like them. I think I like them better if I had a bottle of red wine next to me and and the big boy stereo going and could really luxuriate Mm -hmm. the sound more. And I just didn't have the opportunity to listen to these in those circumstances. I was at my desk at work or listening on the... We just finally, supposedly tomorrow, we're going to hit 40 degrees. But we have had some shit weather here in the Midwest. It was minus three when I walked to work today. So <laughs> I was like, I got, we got six inches of snow last last Saturday. I mean, it's just it's I, it's just like a battering. I feel like a battered spouse. And I've not been able to listen to the, the, the over-the-ear headphones. I've been listening to these buds I got, which are decent, 
but they are not real bass rich, and they're just not ideal for some of this music. They don't quite have the fidelity of the over-the-ear ones, but I just cannot wear them until it's like warm enough that I won't like it frostbite. So I'm hoping that <laughs> you know next week I can walk to work with my over-the-ear headphones and not get frostbite and listen a little higher fidelity. So I didn't really get to luxuriate in, in, in the sound quite as much as I would have liked. It was very ECM. It was very Euro and it again it was very varied in that I because I'm not learning about an ensemble I'm learning I'm hearing lots of different ensembles the rug keeps getting pulled out from under me in terms of well, who's here what what's the goal what what's 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 the interaction between these players and so I just had to focus on him and he is he's good I mean I want to listen to more of his stuff that was the main result of this is like I like him and I do feel like this is the good side of ECM I didn't feel like it was too yeah. swathed it was too in woolen or too emasculated some more than others. I mean, I don't know that I ever got quite the high of, I get on something like the Dave Holland conference, of the birds album, but I felt like moments right. of this were closer to that than some of the overly quiet, overly polite process stuff that I feel like is kind of characterized ECM in the last decade or so. It's, it's gotten a little bit too, a little too safe or a little too something, a little too echoey, a little too swathed, a little too muffled. So good stuff. But I don't feel like I know it yet. Yeah, no, I, you know, and, and he apparently is kind of like the dean of Polish jazz. He is like the one of the major figures on the landscape there. And as I say, I just got interested in it because at one time, like a lot of early jazz listeners, I pick up the Penguins. And when we say Penguins, we're referring to the Penguin Guide to Jazz, which gets redone every year or so. Robin Cook and or, or something, Cook and Morton. Right, uh, and yeah. I think one of them's dead now. So there's only one Penguin. And they give rosettes or four-star recommended ratings to various recordings. And I just made a point of sort of skimming through and going, if I could find those recommended or coronet recordings, I'd look for them. And they haven't given Stanko any coronets. Oh, no, that's not true. They have. Leosia. Oh, interesting. But they include him, a couple of his albums, as sort of their core collection or whatever their favorite listing is. So that's why I got him. That's why I picked him up, because I thought I'd just want to broaden my ears and listen to stuff that these authorities supposedly like and it just kind of hit me in the right spot terribly atmospheric it reminds me sometimes of aura miles davis's last not last one of his late recordings that he did with a european orchestra and again very much in the sort of colorist mode what is interesting to me is on the stanko discs on the cuts that come from his own albums primarily leosia latania and balladina that's basically his working quartet and all those guys are ECM stalwarts in their own right. So all of the guys in this quartet, Boba Stenson, Anders Dorman, and Tony Oxley, the drummer, all four of those guys like have their own ECM identity discs. But when they play, I guess, with Stanko, they really do kind of subsume their identity, just kind of serve him. So mm-hmm. like he really is kind of playing over this bed of, I wouldn't even call it rhythm, right? I mean, it's just it's colors <laughs> no. and washes. Yeah. Because uh, Boba Stenson is... A big time player and you know it's very plinky plonky and Jorman's just plonking away and Oxley who can tear up a room is lots of brushwork on the cymbals very sort of sedate calm but never never too slow right I mean so like Morning Heavy Song is probably my favorite song and it's taken at a dangerously slow tempo <laughs> and yet it retains interest all the way through but it is this sort of like blah, blah. <laughs> it just really takes its time 
Yeah. Uh, just a really, really lovely song, but it almost sounds like it's ending from the moment it starts. Right. Yeah. <laughs> it and and I, I believe it's the opening cut on Leosia too, which I think is really daring. You know, your opening cut is the all right. Well, let's all go to sleep now. You know, it's great. It's it's an aptly titled song, morning heavy song. It'd be a good song to wake up to or not, as the case may be. There you go. So, anyway, yeah, I like this stuff a lot. I mean, I, I do like him. I don't know nearly enough about him. I only know him from the three or four discs that I have. But uh, yeah, the selected just sort of got slotted in and I thought let's give it a shot I thought for some reason you had heard him before so I'm glad that you've been given a little exposure I do feel like he's he made it I felt like it was pretty clear that he had that that I've talked about before the listener recordings were very fine players that don't necessarily have the gift of, of compelling your attention with the lines they play the, the lines are good they fit the harmonies they are well executed they just don't have a lot of, for me, subjectively, intrinsic melodic interest. I think he's got yes. that talent. I, mean, I think he kind of draws yeah. your ears to him. And the, the unusual tone helps. He's just got a charisma to him. That's he, a good word. It's, it's a subtle, slow charisma. It's not right, a, yeah. it's a, it's a cat charisma, not a dog charisma. It's, I'm over here, come pet me if you want, maybe. He never shook hands with Maynard Ferguson because the universe would have imploded, right? Negative yeah, and positive. Yeah, very, it <laughs> very different. The vortex yeah. has started. Don't cross the streams. Yeah. Holy shit. But it thank you. It would be fun yeah. to see. It would be fun to have like Stanko play some of uh, Ferguson's showboat tunes. And, there you go. And see if Ferguson could have played Morning Heavy Song. That would be fun. There you go. Eli's not coming. He's just sleeping. He's, I don't know. He's got a nap going. He's, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Burdling my ass. Yeah. I don't think it slips into cliche or, or self-parody, but it is very ECM. But I, as I said, the, the light side of that label, because I'm not, I'm not against everything they do. I just feel like they have kind of denatured and neutered some of the artists they've gotten recently, and they've maybe gotten to the point where the house sound has gotten a bit smothering for, for some artists. And I feel like he escapes yeah. that. So it's good stuff. Gee, what happens next? That was the one I kind of want to get out of the way. We can, I, whatever order we go in, we need to pair Watts and Pullen because there are similar things. There are things that are going on in those two albums that are similar, I think, that we should talk about. So we can pair them. Can we finish with St. Brad? Let's finish oh, with St. Brad. Okay. I was going to say, you want to save him for last. You can savor him. Roll him yes. around on your tongue. Sweet, sweet Brad. That's right. Sweet, sweet Brad. All right. All right. Well, how about... So we can talk about whichever one you want, yeah. Let's do Ernie first and then climb the mountain to Pullen. So Ernie Watts reaching up 1994, a tenor player who for a while was probably tired of people sneaking up behind him and saying, da, 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 da. His low point, aesthetically, if not commercially, was releasing an album with Chariots of Fire on it in, in, in kind of a disco-wise version. And he was known as a studio cat and a commercial cat for a long time. And then kind of, I guess, after having made his bones there and, and made enough money to retire on, came out as a hardcore jazz player, probably most famously or best known with Charlie Waden's, Charlie 
Wade's. Let me try again. Charlie Hayden's Quartet West, a group I've not listened to. And then he did a lot of solo stuff as well in kind of a hardcore jazz mode. But for a while there, he was known as a studio cat and a guy that would kind of do some crossover stuff, including, again, the infamous Cherry Sapphire. So what led you to, to, to Ernie and what do you think of this this album? Like a lot of people, I browse music services, and if you like this, you might like this, and it came up. So I got it. It was just one of those random things. If you like all of these things, you might like this. I was like, okay, you know, I'll try anything. So I picked this up, and I'm very curious to know what you think of this, in part because I'm sure you've never heard him before. I know I hadn't, and the Penguins don't even know he exists. Like, he's not on their radar at all. So if you're not in the Penguins' radar, you're not in the jazz universe as far as a lot of people are concerned, right? And I'll be really interested to know what you think about him. But this was a great surprise, actually. I liked this much more than I thought I was going to. I don't think it's great, but I think it's it's better than passable. It's pretty good. It helps that he's got a good set of folks behind him. So Mulgrew Miller on piano, um, who has some nice moments. Charles Fambro, we talked about one of his discs a little while ago. I think the proper angle, perhaps. Right. And then Jack DeJanette on drums, who is the major addition on this album. He really keeps things moving along. He does some really nice work here. And then there's a couple of cuts with Arturo Sandoval on trumpet, who I don't know at all. And this is the first time I've heard Arturo Sandoval that I'm aware of. Call me ignorant. But you probably have heard Arturo Sandoval. You probably have some of his discs. But he was new to me. So anyway, my, my reaction to this is, it's the second coming of John Coltrane in some ways, isn't it? Minus, minus some of the angst and most of the spirituality. This is a guy who's very much playing. He's very much in the Coltrane school, isn't he? He's not doing a couple of things that Coltrane followers often do, which I appreciate. He avoids multiphonics, which I think is sometimes an overused device by people who are yeah, for the, most the spirit part, of... Right, yeah, right yeah. but you get the sense that it's not like... It's not a go-to device for him right, at all. Right. It's not some. He doesn't live there. There are some players who follow Coltrane, and they are really into the overblowing. And he doesn't do that. And the other thing that he doesn't do that I really like is he doesn't live at the upper register of the horn. He spends a lot of time in the in the lower part of the horn, and he plays it really fleet. He's got some really nice phrasing. He's really tight. If I have a complaint about this, and I'm curious where you fall on this, it's that virtually every song works the same way. And I don't know if this is Watts's fault. I don't know if it's a fault. Maybe it's not a fault. But I don't know if this is Watts or Jack DeJanette, who is incredibly present here. Jack DeJanette is the drummer, and he, he gooses everything along. He will not let any of these numbers languish. <laughs> and when he is playing backing behind the solos, I mean, he's just kicking it all the time. He is goosing everything all the way through. There's just no moment where there's no brushwork, you know. I mean, he is just <laughs> he is pumping it along, and he's he's very present. And it, even in the other solos, you can hear him sort of pushing it. So like the opening cut, reaching up, it's kind of an up tempo. What you would call it, bossa or Latin rhythm? I don't know exactly what it is, but it's you know this, this sort of trumpet tenor open over the rhythm, and then we get Watts solo over the rhythm section. And it's fantastic. Talk about an announcement. Like, I'm here. And it's a terrific solo. And Jack DeJanette is omnipresent during the solo. You know, I mean, he is, he is like, it's definitely a solo, but he is just not tapping out the time behind anybody. And he's contributing. It's almost, it's almost, it's not quite by play all the way through. And then that number is followed by 
my, the other number that I think is really great on here, which is he plays Mr. Sims, the Coltrane number from Coltrane Plays the Blues, and a song I love. I think it's a great song. And he takes it at an almost stately tempo initially. And then like every other song on here, it starts to pick up in the middle and it gets faster. And then by the time Watts builds up ahead of steam, we're cranking along. This one has a sort of long piano solo that, that brackets the f- two uh, solos that uh, Watts takes here. And the second tenor solo is really special, I think. It's really quite good. And that's kind of the template for all of these songs, even the ones that start out slow. Like the, the slowest song on here is You Leave Me Breathless, an original. And it's, it's a really sort of slow ballad. And then we get a kind of long piano solo in the middle. And then when Watts comes into solo, the pace picks up again. And almost every song kind of has this mojo. And it got a little samey for me sometimes. I kind of wanted to hear him play one slow ballad all the way through. No, nothing more than eighth notes. Can we just play a whole? <laughs> like, let's let's just let's keep it slow. Let's let's just play, play pretty. And I don't think that Watts is a particularly pretty player or a particularly lyrical player. The guy he reminds me of in some ways is, I mean, obviously he's playing, he's a Coltrane aficionado, but he reminds me of uh, Johnny Griffin a little bit, like the speed that he has on the horn and the power. I mean, he's he's a he's a powerful player. He he's kind of got a big tone. There's no breathy, no breathiness here. There's no, I wouldn't say there's not much in the way of lightness of touch. Even on the slower numbers, the numbers that start slower before they pick up pace. He's, there's, he's, he's kind of a, he's a, he's a blower. He's a, he's a power player in some ways, which, you know, I liked, but I kind of, I, I really did want to hear him play and maybe break out the soprano and uh, play something just really slow and pretty. But maybe that's not in his toolkit. And if it isn't, it isn't. He certainly picked the right guy to accompany him with Jack DeJanette because he, he's in this bag. I think that the unit worked pretty well together for the most part. But should have been called like Ernie Watts plus Jack DeJanette and a couple other guys because you know, <laughs> the drums really are featured. Oh, yeah. So anyway. Yeah, he is. He's all over What do you think? You think over-featured? You think well, it's too much? What we got to do someday, we'll just do another 80s episode. And Jack DeJanette's special edition made a couple really fantastic oh, yeah. records. So as a conceptualist, he's been good. This reminded me, I think the closest soul brother that Watts has is Michael Brecker, right? They're out of that Coltrane bag, but mm. both of them are much more secular yeah. focused. And they got that New York mm. vibrato going, you know, the kind of thing you might hear on Saturday Night Live. Yep. And they got just infinite technique, mm-hmm. right? Infinite speed. And of course, Watts, I think even more, somehow Brecker always kept his jazz creds, even though he also did a lot of crossover stuff. I mean, the Brecker Brothers was certainly a funk rock band as much as a jazz band. And I'm sure Brecker appeared on thousands of sessions by popular mm-hmm. artists, but I don't think Brecker ever released an album called Chariots of Fire. So he never quite on his own steam, under his own name, released something that was quite so M.O.R. commercial as Watts did. Watts is very much a studio player. He, he's on lots and lots of states, and he's got this ample technique. And then at some point, he decides he's going to team up with Charlie Hayden, who's got lots of street credit, if nothing else. And he's going to start making hardcore, middle-of-the-road, post-Coltrane jazz albums. And he's good at it. I mean, I enjoyed it. At the same time, you're absolutely right. In some ways, I might argue that maybe he's a little bit warmer, a little bit less pure technique than Brecker can be at times. I think Brecker, I felt like, kind of had a wall around himself emotionally for most of his career towards until towards the end when he knew he was dying and he got some of that depth in it. At the same time, you know, Watts is not a real deep player in terms of sentiment. The one tune that really struck me was I Hear a Rhapsody, 
And I felt mm-hmm. like every time I heard it, it's like, Ernie Watts does not give a fuck about this song. Great, <laughs> you know, I'm, and I don't know that anyone should. I don't know that that's a great song. I don't know that I've ever heard a really compelling mm-hmm. version of it, but it's like, this is a set of harmonies. He does not get, you know, the whole idea of like Lester Young or Dexter Gordon, you know, you're going to learn the lyrics. You can listen to Frank Sinatra sing it. You're going to think about the lyrics when you're playing it. Like, utter fucking bullshit. He does, it's just a harmonic scaffolding on which he's going to perform but it doesn't have any emotional haft and and maybe just including that song but it's just a way of signaling you don't care that much about the great american songbook right it's just i i, I feel like it's third tier material but yeah i just felt like every time i heard it, it's like you really don't give a fuck about that song do you you just don't you just don't care about it. you're gonna play it but you don't give a shit about it as a song and that's not necessarily wrong but at the same time, I feel like if you're going to pull a standard out of the bag, pick one that you care about, that you are energized by or magnetized to or whatever that, that, that is important to you as a player. Don't just pick one with an each set of chord changes. Yeah, I liked it. D. Jeanette is powerful. He is present as one reason we want to twin this with Pullen, no doubt. And I feel like in this case and to some degree with Pullen, this is a story of the headliner not necessarily quite having the jazz cred or the big name as the drummer. And so there's almost a sense of kind of a, a I don't want to say power struggle, but there's a very great prominence by the percussionist in both those sessions where they are not just serving the muse or trying to be invisible. They are, they're very present. They're driving things. And I, I enjoyed it. I don't know this is my favorite drumming by DeJanet, but it, it's fine. Right. And the whole rhythm section is, is blue ribbon, right? They're all oh, yeah. very good. And I felt like the session in general was, hey, I could deliver a pizza or I could play tenor. You know, he's one of those guys, you look at him as like, you know, kind of a lumpy Italian looking guy. There's about half a dozen great tenor players who kind of look like the guy that might fix your Fiat or he might deliver your pizza or whatever. But they happen to play really awesome tenor. None of them quite have the charisma that they're going to be jazz legends. None of them quite make you want to cry into your coffees to listen to them. They're just all really good craftsmen with great technique. And I think, you know, Ernie's got decent taste. I'm not listening to this thinking this is vulgar. This is misguided. This guy's got a good jazz heart to him. And I think it's a good session. I don't know that it's great. I wouldn't expect, you know, I heard a live, Amazon streaming's got like one of his live sessions that has to have been around this time. It shares a couple numbers. He's he's a good, solid meat and potatoes tenor player. Johnny Griffin, I don't know that I, he reminds me a lot of him as a player, other than that powerful tone and the great technique. Mm-hmm. I think he's more of the Brecker school, but I think a great example of that kind of player in an earlier generation. I don't know that Griffin's ever going to open the skies for you. You're never going to think of him as the world's great conceptualist, but he's a fucking good tenor player. Same with Ernie. Yeah, no, I mean, you know, you could sort of see Watts. I mean, and the reason I was thinking of Griffin is Griffin is not spiritual in any sense. Yeah, you know, he's the true. fastest gun in the West, and he plays at one speed, you know. <laughs> And even when he plays a ballad, that's uh, there's some songs where he'll play ballads and he the, the, it just gets faster. It just seems to you know he, he takes everything at a pretty quick pace. And that's what Watts was like on the few slow numbers, even the slow numbers in the middle. They always pick up pace. And when he starts soloing, he just kind of has one speed. And that's you know it's he's good at it. I enjoy it. But like I said, I really would have liked to hear the man just say, "All right, on this song, nothing but eighth notes." Let's yeah. just see where that takes us. It's not going to you know? happen. No. <laughs> not going to happen. Not going to happen. Yeah, so, he's... And, you know, if if that's how you're going to play, then Jack DeJanet can kick... It's okay for him to kick things along. Oh, absolutely. Um, I mean, it fits, so... 
He's not trampling on a fragile flower. Paul Desmond no. wouldn't have liked him, but no, he's like fine. I mean, he can kind of kick things around, and maybe he needs to in that the excitement, the inflection. He, you need a, somebody in the boiler room really pushing things to make this kind of session work because Watts is such a power player. You wouldn't want a regressive or recessive drummer who's like loves of brushes. You, you don't want somebody who's about in a bag of kind of oblique commentary. Dejanet and kind of rampant mode is ideal for this and uh who's the piano player is it kenny Barron? it's somebody really no, no, good Mulgrew miller i'm sorry i'm Mulgrew sorry miller. a very fleet very technically secure player a little florid maybe and again fits yeah, beautifully bit. in this so yeah. i feel like this is a notch above meat and potatoes tenor session it, it, it's yeah. it's likable it's, it's it's got a it's got some heart to it don't throw it away if you see it in a bin this is a good one to have. This is a nice one to put on. Not necessarily for romantic evenings, unless Mama's Little Girl likes it short and sweet, as Ian Hunter once said, unless there's somebody you really want to kind of speed fuck. <laughs> you probably want somebody else. Get some Dexter Gordon going on. But in terms of just good, solid, a notch above average tenor, tenor session, this yeah, definitely fits you know, the bill. You know, it's, it's good to – there are plenty of session musicians who spend their careers sort of backing blues bands or rock bands who never really – you know, they make a really good living, but they never really get a chance to – or they choose not to have the chance to step out into a pure jazz idiom or do what they kind of want to do. And Watts did, and this album is a really good example of a guy who can actually do this. He's not, uh, he's not a poser. He's legit, right. Yeah, he's, and he's definitely worth listening to. The studio did not sap his soul. The studio did not leave him uh, a pure machine. He, he's got yeah. his thing to say. And I'm sure that a lot of times over those years and years of sessions, for instance, playing Chariots of Fire, he had to play a lot of eighth notes. He's like, fuck it. I'm playing 16th and 30 seconds from now on. It's a my, <laughs> I'm doing it my way, and my way is, is Coltrane Brecker fast. Yeah, I found a clip on YouTube of him playing with this guy named Don Gronlich. A piano player who made a couple. Oh, Gronlich, yeah. Gronlich, yeah. yeah. And he made yeah, a couple Gronlich, really yeah. good, interestingly written albums for Blue Note that have been in and out of print for years, a little hard to find. They feature Brecker, and he apparently was a studio cat who made a couple of these hardcore sessions with just superstars on them that are very likable, and then up and died. He didn't last long. But anyway, it was a weird scene to see Brecker and watch there. I'm like, isn't this kind of overkill? How many tenors do you need of the New York inflection? Well, and you know, um, Gromlich played with Joe Lovano. And to me, Joe Lovano is Ernie Watts with more arrows in the quiver. More Paul, Big tone. More Paul Gonzalez you know, in him, right? He's got that kind of smeary, yes. mouth delivery. Yeah, he, he, and he's a But he can also play, he can play slow. He can play slow. Yeah. He can play really pretty. He can be a lyrical player. But Watts is kind of in that bag. He's kind of in that power player mode. He, right. He's, he's a fastball pitcher. And see, Lovano, um, who's had this incredibly storied career at Blue Note, no, he stayed on. If I had to listen to a Joe Lovano solo or a Greg Osby solo, I think I'd probably vote Greg Osby 90 times out of 100. But what Lovano got, and we'll have to do some Lovano, I, we've got to do this thing he did with yeah. Gunther Shielder years ago. I think it's just one of the great albums, period. I, I think that Lovano somehow, at some level, realizes that he's not the world's most compelling soloist, but by God, he is going to create context after context after context to showcase him in different different facets and, and kind of surround himself with different environments so you don't get tired of him as a player. Where Ernie Watts is like, give me a fucking quartet. Give me the rhythm section. I'm going to play. You know, <laughs> he, he's just like, and by the way, here's your meatball sandwich. Enjoy. He's 
He's just, <laughs> you know, he's just like, let's play. Let's get the let's get the fucking tape rolling. I'm going to play some here. You know, I can play really good. And a very different take. And, of course, it's amazing the, the, the criticism and the, the accolades that have come to Lovano versus Watts, who's kind of in, in the hardcore jazz community under the radar. I don't know that I have to, I want to pick between them as who's a better soloist, but mm-hmm. one had this knack for setting up conceptual situations for him. Every album's got a different theme. Every album's got a different spin. The other guy's like, let's go to the studio. Hey, you got a drummer? Good. He's fine. He's fine. Let's go in there. And he's got this amazing orange tan. God bless him. God bless Ernie Watts. I know something's going on in the tanning booth there. He's, he's, he, you, you want to squeeze him and get juice out of him. God bless him. But, you know, he's a good player. He's a good player. So, yeah, uh, another cool. note to ourselves. We've got to do some Lavana. We're moving on, and I, I want to thank you, as I always do, because it's always nice that we can get together and talk about these things. But you sent me an album by Don Pullen, and I immediately recognized it. The album's New Beginnings. And I said, holy, okay, this is one of those albums that was on this mosaic set of recordings that Don Pullen did with and without George Adams on Blue Note. Yes. Four records. Yes. And this is a trio album he did. And I got to say, every time I listen to bits of that set, I kind of trampolined off it. There's something about it that, that I just didn't dig, and so I didn't end up spending as much time with it as I should have. And so this album forced me to say, okay, I've got to come to grips with Pullen and what he's about. Got me interested in Pullen. I still think there's some problematic aspects to this session, but I w- yes. turned around. I got my, I got a Charles Mingus's Changes 1 and 2, so I wanted to hear Pullen mm-hmm. with Mingus. I got, Choice is not thrilled about this, but I got the $30 Black Saint box set of pulling stuff so seven more records i've just barely dipped my toe into because i came late <laughs> so i'm like i gotta learn about this guy and get some context on him because man this is an interesting trio album with a really fucking high power group of people right is is it peacock on bass gary peacock is on bass and is he playing electric it sounds electric well i think it's there's a book i don't know if this book has been done yet jazz in the 80s my God, if it's not been done, there's got to be a book on jazz in the 80s because the white blue notes we've talked about, things like James Newton, there's yeah. just, but not just blue note, the story of Black Saint, the story of blue note, the story of Columbia and Winton, just this weird period. And one thing going on there that supposedly I think Del Fayo was against as a producer on a lot of the Winton Marcellus albums was the bass that was directly plugged into the soundboard. You stick a pickup hmm. on the bass you run a line from that to the soundboard and you get a fucking rubber band. And right. what he insisted on doing was going back to miking the bass the way the Blue Note, Rudy Van Gelder used to do, where you've got a mic outside of the thing and you're getting some of the wood, some of the sound of the instrument as a whole rather than this direct pickup sound. So my guess is what we're hearing is an 80s style direct to the board off a pickup recording of Gary Peacock rather than just putting a mic in front of his instrument and getting the whole thing. And one thing I'll say the Marcellus brothers did is they crushed that out. I mean, I don't think anybody records bass like that anymore. The 70s and the 80s, people did it. And then... There was just this revulsion against that. If you've got an acoustic bass, 
You don't want it to sound like a fucking electric bass. You want to get a microphone away from it. You want to get the wood of the instrument and get the sound of it. You know, it's amazing. He sounds better on ESP, which I, I think ESP probably recorded their albums with cardboard boxes they'd hooked up to. I, yeah. God only knows. But they at least didn't have the synth. So anyway, it's Peacock. It's Pullen, who is a fucking force of nature. And then Tony Williams, yes. in case you were short of forces of nature. This is a whole fucking lot of nature. <laughs> Mother Nature's staying out of this room because she doesn't know what had happened to her. She got in there. All yeah. sorts of crazy shit going on with a real powerhouse trio here. New Beginnings on Blue Note. Don is hoping that this gets him a little wider exposure. And, yep. of course, soon after this album's recorded, drops dead. So didn't work out for I guess that's not true. He's He's got a few years left in him. But he dies young. He dies, like, in his 50s. And it, it's kind of a yeah. tragedy. What put you onto this one? I just, oh, anytime I can pick up Don Pullen, I'll pick him up. I've got five or six of his CDs at this point. The stuff that I like the best is the stuff he plays with David Murray, sometimes when he's playing organ. And that happens not long after this. I don't have any of the George Adams stuff, so I need to look for that at some point. But I have Capricorn Rising and Shaquille's Warrior and a couple of other discs by Pullen. And he's featured on a couple of David Murray albums. Uh, and he often plays organ, actually, on those. So in any event, here he's playing piano. The first thing I'll say that this album has going for it is it does not overstay its welcome. It is short and sweet, which is probably good, given what they're doing. I mean, I could not take 80 <laughs> minutes of this. 38 minutes is exactly how long this should take. It should not take a second longer than 38 minutes. I was kind of struck with how restrained in some ways, Tony Williams is on this date. Tony can play a lot, and he does play a lot here, but I think I've heard him busier and louder than he is here. He seems fairly restrained. The person who's not restrained is Pullen. <laughs> oh, I, I mean... No shit. Th- there's there's three songs on here I really like. I like half the numbers. The others I don't dislike. They're good. But I really like Once Upon a Time at the Cafe Central, and Reap the Whirlwind, which, holy shit, that is a killer. That song is amazing. But they pretty much all start the same way, right? It doesn't matter if we're in 4-4 time or 2-3 time. It doesn't matter what we're doing. We get a little statement, and then we get the crazy Cecil Taylor piano runs. Pullen is just this side of out. We talked about this last time with Andrew Hill and Compulsion. And I think Pullen might just be like, Andrew Hill, if you're making a spectrum of piano players who get out, right? Hill is sort of in and out, and Cecil Taylor's like all the way out, and Pullen's like just this side of Cecil Taylor. And he'll play the melodies, and then when he starts doing his solos, even on mid-tempo numbers, he does these amazing double-handed runs. It's almost like, you know what he reminds me of? Um, um, this is the part that I don't like. They're really similar, these runs from song right. to song. Sort of, and he just plays them. He's an incredibly fast player, and he plays these. They're just the side of kids banging on the piano because there is still – he's just enough in touch with the melody and just enough in touch with chording and harmonic structures that you can sort of hear where it fits into the whole structure. But goddamn, these all sound the same after a while. I mean, his solos, and he's doing it with both hands, bouncing up the keyboard on these really fast sort of runs. It reminds me of the Marx Brothers movies. You ever see Marx Brothers movies? Oh, sure. Where in every movie, except for the earliest movies, in every movie, Chico Marx gets to play piano. And Chico Marx was a, a very talented piano player. Not a great piano player, but he's talented. And 
every piano solo and every Marx Brothers movie is really similar. You know, he does the little you know, shooting the gun thing and oh, the little God, fingers yes. walking up, the little runs. And there's just a similarity to all of them. And I felt like Pullen's playing here. The soloing is a little similar. The sort of the way that he does these runs up and down the keyboard where they're just barely in touch with the melody and they're just really powerful and frenetic. I like them but I'm glad the album isn't any longer than 38 minutes. I could not take another minute of this. Where I think it's at its most effective is on Reap the Whirlwind, where I think we get the closest to spontaneous improvisation between all three players. There, uh, on most of the songs, it feels like the rhythm section is mostly serving as kind of a bedrock over which Pullen does his thing, and then he'll pull back and just go back to simple chording and let Peacock and Williams do their solos. But on Reap the Whirlwind, my feeling is they're all, it's just a free-for-all, and they're all barely in touch with the melody and they're all kind of simultaneously improvising against one another that to me felt like the most organic and the most powerful of the songs on the album and it was far and away the most interesting that was the one where his runs and his little jabbings on the piano felt like they were part of an organic whole not just a kind of fallback technique that always went to and the reason i thought this album kind of went with with watts was it's like this is the arrow in my quiver this is what i got and I'm going to do it. And it doesn't matter if the song starts out as a slow ballad. He gets to the same place, you know, <laughs> and every song. The one difference is the final number, Silence Equals Death, which is uh, just piano solo. There's a few runs in it, but it's almost contemplative. And then it ends in a kind of contemplative, meditative mode. And the liner notes to the album talk about how Silence Equals Death is, is his sort of take on not just politics, but he kind of got interested apparently in environmentalism. Mm -hmm. So it's sort of a kind of mild protest number on his part. It's the longest number on the album, and it's the most different number on the album. It's not like anything else here. And in some ways, it feels like it belongs somewhere else but without it the album's only 30 minutes long so even less so i guess it's good that it's here it's kind of filler maybe i don't know anyway i do like this but man is it the same from song to song this feels really similar and if you plonked the needle down at minute three and a half well some of these songs aren't that long if you plonk the needle down at like minute two and a half of any of these songs i defy you to say which song you're listening to if you listen to it for just 10 seconds you'll be like right. oh yeah that's don Pullen," but you wouldn't know which cut you know it'd be really hard to tell whoop, whoop, whoop. yeah i don't know i love and I, I have to look around youtube to see him playing i I've yeah. heard it. What he's doing described as kind of a rolling almost of a fist, but it is that glissando sound that you do hear children making on a piano where they strike it and just run their fingers up the, the keys real fast. And I think the problem with this project and to some degree some of the other music on this mosaic set of the Blue Note albums, he did two with George Adams, George Adams up and died, and the two trio albums is that I feel like it's not that he's to the left of Andrew Hill. It's that he's to the left of Andrew Hill and to the right of Andrew Hill. In other words, mm -hmm. Andrew Hill's songs are always very oblique harmonically. They're hard yes, to hum. Yes, yes, yes. Whereas So these, even when he plays the melody, you're like, what right, is the yeah. melody? You know, yeah. yeah, I mean, it, it is. he's a mysterious kind of guy. And right. this stuff is, is very centrist melodically and yes. harmonically. And then the yes. minute Pullen starts playing solos on it, it is... Cecil Taylor-esque, though I yes. think it's I think that's a little unfair. One because Pullen always seems, even in some of the other projects I've just slowly started to listen to, to have one more foot in traditionalism than than Taylor does. He is not as yeah. ultimately abstract a musician, yeah. but here I feel like he's almost in a bad faith situation. His hope was apparently when he went to Blue Note is he'd get more publicity, he'd finally kind of go a step beyond the kinds of 
tours he was getting and sales he was getting with a great independent label like Black Saint and, and really break a little bigger. And that didn't happen for him. I, my sense is that Blue Note was in disarray in the 80s, didn't have the promotional machinery they needed, probably didn't know what to do with Pullen. But I feel like he's trying to appeal to the masses, but at the same time, go to this weird glissando heavy solo style that really I feel like some of the other stuff I've listened to, if you listen to Changes 2, which I got through a couple times, Changes 1 came in the mail today. I'm like, well, that's great, but uh, it's kind of late. And uh, some of the earlier stuff, he's either more comfortably in a truly avant-garde style where, where the musical materials are also abstract, or with, with Mingus, he is playing in Mingus's world, which is a harmonic world. It's not a free jazz world. There's a lot of freedom in it, a lot of energy. And those are kind of some of the more polished sessions he did. Definitely, certainly too, is a compelling record. I'd never heard it. I really hadn't heard much of Mingus from the 70s. It's definitely worth tracking down if you get a shot at it. And Pull In There, I feel like, is in a more comfortable place as an artist. His solos don't seem so samey. I mean, you almost feel like he's kind of pulling away from some kind of agenda when he solos in the Blue Note stuff. So I really, I was glad to hear it because I felt like I got more value out of just concentrating on this one session. And especially at the end, I'm like, holy shit, finally we made it. Reap the whirlwind. This is what he wants to be doing. Yes. The, the earlier stuff, it seems like he's trying to kind of get a Soul Brother vibe going with the melodies and then kind of rebelling against it two minutes in, as he said, <laughs> and going back to these right. almost kind of cliched solo approaches. And Reap the Whirlwind and the final solo piece, which I think is like a bonus track they added in later to, to flesh uh, out a CD. I feel like he's more comfortable there as an artist where his whole rainbow of technique is available to him. He's not falling down the crutch of these endless glissandos. And at the same time, he's not trying to present music that's quite so middle of the road harmonically and melodically. And I mean, they're good. They're catchy tunes. I do feel like he's got a populist touch to him. He's able to do that. He'll occasionally could try to do a boogaloo, but really the guy was born to be a bleak. He's born to be right. Shadow Man. He doesn't do a very good job of kind of uh, playing to the, the cheap seats. Poland, I think he's got a decent ear for melody, but the sessions on Blue Note, they just seem a little torn. And, and this one did. That said, you've got incredible firepower going here. And it was, you know, I read somewhere, this is considered one of the great trio albums of this decade. And then all the music does not like it. It kind of dismisses it. It finds it too torn. I'm probably yeah. leaning more towards the all music degree. But at the same time, I felt like listening to this album again and again taught me, hey, pull in somebody I don't want to ignore. I've been, I've been kind of collapsing him into this cliche of the glissandos and maybe George Adams is being kind of a Booker Irvin type figure for me where it's like I see what you're doing it's a little grating and getting a little bit more of both of these artists who played together with Mingus and Danny Richmond who was apparently in their quartet for a while so that unit kind of when Mingus was gone stepped away found a new bass player and continued on for quite a while with small Italian labels and of course a couple Blue Note releases so I want to listen to more. I really do. I want to go through these Black Saint albums when he was obviously comfortably ensconced in the avant-garde. There's one with Sam Rivers. You can imagine that's soothing. Oh, and, yeah. And, and some others. Really interesting personnel. I mean, there's kind of a murderer's row of avant-garde players in the 70s and 80s on these on these sessions. And I want to listen to them and, and hear pulling away from this attempt to kind of go mainstream. Yeah, I think what you said is pretty. That's a good point that he does. He he very very in very ordinary material that he plays straight, and then when it comes time <laughs> to solo, it's like, all right, yeah. he channels his inner Cecil. And uh, y your point is well taken that he's never Cecil Taylor is out. 
jumping pumpkins aside, when Cecil Taylor gets into full cry, people who don't listen to jazz will say, my child could play that because that's what Cecil Taylor sounds like. It really sounds like he's just sitting on the keys and kicking the piano. And Pullen's never that far out, but he's close. He's in the yeah. ballpark. It is weird where he's you know to the left and to the right of Banfield. I think that's, that's a good way of putting it. I mean, you could argue, and, and certainly people like Marcellus do make this argument, and who's the documentarian, Ken Burns, and that awful travesty yeah. of the jazz thing, that, that Cecil Taylor is finally just not that related to jazz in his later career. Right. There isn't that much folk in what he's doing. It's improvised music of a very high order, but is there jazz there? And I, I don't know that, the, you know, there's certainly some sessions, and I think Taylor himself is not, he's not very concerned with having this label affixed to what he's doing. Whereas Pullen, I feel like there is more of a folk strain in his music. The AACM, yeah. it's got some touchstones in the blues and folk forms and melody that I don't think ever deserted him. And I, in some ways, I find that more interesting, that tension, than maybe not as, as finely artistically achieved, but maybe more likable than a lot of what Taylor does. But I do feel like in this session and parts of it, he's really torn. I mean, he, he's not comfortable straddling those areas. He's kind of pandering to one and to the other. He's, he's, he's like Jekyll and Hyde rather than somebody who's, who's found himself. So it's, it's a fascinating session. And, of course, great deals of jazz motherfuckery going on. I mean, Peacock's an amazing player. He's off the leash. God knows. Uh, Williams, I think you're right in certain ways. He's maybe not as overpowering. I do feel like that, that Williams and his teens with Miles Davis, there's maybe a freshness and a surprise to what he's playing that maybe he's a little bit lost in technique and power and, and name here. It's not that he's bad. It's not that he's tasteless, but maybe a little of the bloom is off the rose for me with his playing here. It's still amazing. And this is an amazing trio. Okay, well, finally now, the whole reason this episode exists, we, we can go back. <laughs> I think I'm going to call this one Brad listen, and some other guys. Back to St. Brad. Brad and some other guys. The Meldow well, Listen, I, we, we, I think we've done Gregory Porter more than anyone else. <laughs> we've only done, I think, one other Brad Meldow album, and it was, maybe we've done two. What have we do? Have we done Highway Rider? Well, you got to remember that there's also your fan fiction, and he slowly took off his tight white shirt. Yeah, uh, we did Highway Rider, and I feel like, Jesus Christ, we've talked about Meldow Metheny. We've Jeez. alluded to it, but we didn't officially. Did we do Ode? Did we talk about Ode? We might have talked about I Ode. I think we did. Yeah, right, yeah. One of those, he, he released a twin albums. One was Standards, and I've not heard it yet, and then one was his own stuff, Ode, and we did do that. So we've done some Meldow. We, we have yielded the shrine before. All right, well, so whatever. Three is not too many since we've done three of Gregory. That will be my litmus test. Yeah, probably we should not do any more Brad until we cover some people we haven't even gotten to yet. You know, there's probably some important people we should look at once in a while. Anyway, so yeah, this is just random. It just was in the in the hopper, so that's why we're doing it. It's Brad Meldow's Art of the Trio Volume 1 from 97. Not the first Warner, not the first of his major label debut. That would be introducing Brad Meldow who probably didn't really need any introduction by that point. 
but this is the first of the great series, Art of the Trio. And, of course, it stars the trio, yes, Meldau. And this is his original trio. So uh, Larry Grenadier, his longtime bassist, in all of his projects, he seems to use Grenadier. And then Jorge Rossi on drums. And he had actually met Rossi when he played in Europe with Persico Sambeat, I think that's the name. And they played in a quartet. They backed this uh, tenor player. Maybe he's an alto player. Anyway, Persico. Um, They backed him in Europe, and it was Meldau... Jorge Rossi on drums and Mario Rossi on bass. I don't know if the Rossis are related. Anyway, um, so Rossi was part of the trio for a very long time. And then I think in 2005 or so was replaced by Jeff Ballard, which is a little bit misleading. Apparently Rossi wanted to leave. It was his choice and wanted to go back to Spain. So Ballard is a kind of replacement. And one of the bywords among Meldau fan children is that Ballard is a upgrade over Rossi and that may or may not be true Ballard certainly has more rock in him than Rossi does he's got more of a kind of rock power feel but they're both really really good drummers and I I don't I'm not of the school that Ballard is just light years better than Rossi I, I think that's kind of silly Rossi's great so yeah this is their first Art of the Trio project another widely Brooded about point about Meldau, you know, how arrogant to call these series of albums Art of the Trio. It wasn't his idea, although he did, obviously, he obviously greenlighted it, but apparently it was the longtime producer at uh, Warner's when Warner Jazz was a force to conjure with. Pearson, Mark Pearson, something like that. It was his idea to call it, to call these albums Art of the Trio. So we can absolve Uncle Brad of some of the hubris that that one might associate with a set of albums titled <laughs> Art of the Trio. I mean, seriously, what the fuck? So anyway, some of the things that we often say about Brad Maldow, I think when you listen to this album carefully, if you listen to it and you try and forget everything else you already know and think about Meldau, you kind of have to revise, I think, your opinion a little bit. It's one of those things where there's a kind of party line that's developed around Meldau over the years, and it's easy to sort of fall back on that as the kind of opinion one ought to have about Meldau. And I think that can be deeply misleading. And if you go back to the albums and listen to them closely, you find that they don't quite stand up to the reputation. So, for example, Meldau famously on one of the Art of the Trio albums, it was the third or the fourth one, in his liner notes, sharply reacted to the claim that he's the second coming of Bill Evans. He rightly objected to this claim because every white piano player turns out to be the second coming of Bill Evans, whether or not he has anything in common with Bill Evans or not. Not Benny um, Green. Meldau, <laughs> not Benny Green. <laughs> nope. <laughs> <laughs> but it's a the next great white hope. And Meldau wrote a famously pissy set of liner notes where he bitched about that comparison and, and forever earned the enmity of a number of people who are like, you'd be lucky to hold Bill Evans' jock, you know, and how dare you to compliment, so even if it's not true. So Meldau, and we've talked about him uh, oftentimes, is can be a ruthlessly searching intellectual player. He has some classical bona fides, and he has this ability to leave to, to dissect a tune, a melody, and leave it quivering on the table, as you've sometimes said. I think that's not true of this album. I don't think that's true of this particular album. I feel like this would be the album you would point to if you wanted to talk about Meldau as a player who feels and doesn't think. I mean, he always thinks. He's a very thoughtful, incredibly intellectual player. But 
this album actually has some lyricism and some romanticism that one doesn't often associate with later Meldau. So if I had to compare him to a player, I wouldn't compare him to Evans. That's not the guy I would go to. I would compare him more to Jarrett. Keith Jarrett and Jarrett in his solo mode in his sort of solo piano improvisation aching over the keyboards mode that's more what Meldau reminds me of here so you know that I just love all Meldau to death and I think I think his stuff is fantastic but there's a number of cuts here that for me kind of stand out blame it on my youth is a lovely way to open the album it's very clever. If anyone was going to say he sounds like Evans, this would be the song to pick, yes. yep. right? This would be the place to go where he, he takes this song at an incredibly slow tempo and, you know, a nice, nice kind of slow piano open rhythm section enters and then they anchor for him to do his improv, right? There is a small bass solo, but not, not a lot goes on there. It's really about Meldau finally soloing. And what's interesting about his solos, and he shows it here as he does on every album after this, he likes to take the melody apart and put it back together again in a new way in his solos so that he's playing sonic bits and pieces that allude to and hint to the melody, but that have been completely reconfigured so that his solos... They're like echoes through a through a hall of mirrors of the original melody, but you can't quite hear the original melody. I think of a good example in my mind of how this works is, do you know that album by Brubeck where they play their version of Over the Rainbow? And it doesn't sound anything like Over the Rainbow. It's Brubeck and Desmond, and the melody somewhere over the rainbow never actually appears but the song is composed of sonic bits that allude to and sound like over the rainbow without ever actually quoting the song that's what meldow's solos are like and they get more and more elaborate and ornate as his career advances the way that he sort of deconstructs and puts back together these melodies he's talked about the fact that oftentimes his solos will be composed of his mishmash of the melody and whatever he's been listening to recently. So if he's been listening to Bach, he channels Bach. If he's been listening to Wynton Kelly, he channels Wynton Kelly. He sort of reconfigures the melody and just sort of puts it together with these bits and pieces that he's been hearing, which I think is really fascinating. So yeah, that's kind of how Blame It On My Youth works. And then I really like, I think it's quite clever that they play I Didn't Know What Time It Was in 5-4 Time. Isn't that cute? Ha ha ha. Who says he doesn't have a sense of humor? That's very clever. Everyone. Oh, um, <laughs> everyone. Everyone. So anyway, the other, two, the, other, the other two cuts I like here a lot are Blackbird, which depends mm. entirely on Larry Grenadier's bass. I had to kind of set the tempo and sort of set the mood for it. And then I Fall in Love Too Easily, which I think is Exhibit A in Brad Meldow is God. I think it's a glorious rendition of that song. And again, it's taken at an insanely slow tempo. And the last couple of minutes, the rhythm section drops out and it's just him and he's feeling. It's feeling more than thinking for the last two minutes of that song as he takes that melody through some paces. So everything is, of course, very pretty, very beautiful. One of the things I do think that happens on this album is the rhythm section there's, it does feel more like this is Brad Meldow's day, and it's less of a trio day to me. I know that everyone says that this is a republic of equals, but it really does feel to me on this album like they're serving him, like they exist for him to do his thing. Whereas on other albums, I feel like there's more equality in the mix between all three. Oh, and the other thing I was going to say is, you know, we always bitch about how Meldow never plays blues, that he seems not to have any funk in his butt. But the solo section on Blackbird is a little funky. 
certainly for Meldau, it's funky. So <laughs> wow, know. yeah. There you go. Many of the many of the many of the cliches about him, I think, don't hold up if you listen carefully to what's going on here. Some of the cliches hold up, you know, but not all. We've detected infinitesimal traces of funk here. Now hold on, you can see right here. Let's take it to the lab. Yeah, well, I will say that I realized, you know, when I got this from you, I kind of assumed over the years I'd accumulated pretty much everything, but I was utterly wrong. I really my set of art of the trio begins with volume three i'd never heard one or two i still haven't heard two uh-huh. yeah somebody you have to hook me up with two there i know you've got the complete set and really i do think if you get hold of this electronic collaboration he does with a percussionist where it's all synthesizers uh. and weird shit we should maybe do that one i you know i, I don't have yeah. any problem with bringing artists back certainly some players you want to keep thinking about them in different contexts for me listening to this volume one as opposed to the later art of the trio albums that i had heard the whole connection with Bill Evans made a little more sense. It didn't seem just stupid yes. and reactionary. There are moments yeah. where he is in that place. There's certainly moments. I think it was that independent solo section where I was reminded a little bit of Keith Jarrett as well. Yeah. I'm not quite sure he's got the gift or the comfort with playing purely pretty that both yeah. Jarrett and in very different ways Evans have. One thing I kind of noticed with Evans towards the end, especially when he goes from heroin to cocaine, especially if you listen to a lot of his playing, you know, these, these relentless eight sets from five days kind of box sets they had, especially towards the very end, where, of course, he's going to repeat himself. I mean, he's, he's a human being. He's not an angel sent from on high or from low or from whatever, living on pure heroin. And he he repeats himself some, and his gestures tend to be just gorgeous, melodic nuggets. And I think with Meldau, his muse is a little bit more analytical, a little bit more throw it in the kaleidoscopes, take it for a spin. Not that he doesn't play beautiful phrases, but he doesn't yeah. quite fall into that honeyed melodicism that, that Evans could, or that in a very different way, or the funk that you know you can hear. Certainly Jarrett is very comfortable with these pop music forms and rhythms in a lot of his solo excursions. So yeah, I enjoyed this. I'd love to hear Brad Meldow with a Jack DeJanette or a Tony Williams, utterly rampant, I guess you're not going to hear him with Tony Williams now, a rampant drummer who's just taking no prisoners because, yeah, clearly these guys are, are great at what they do. They are very much supporting and enhancing Brad's muse. I, I don't feel like they are pulling the song like Taffy on this album or putting themselves in the spotlight much, but they are great accompanists. It, it's it's definitely, you know, Brad's kind of the, the, the focus of the picture and they're in the periphery, but they do a great job. I was not as fond of Blackbird. I felt like that bass ostinato was a little bit too, I don't know, harmonically bland for me. It, it, it hmm. not my favorite of his takes on the modern repertoire. It, and he does it again. And I think he probably later, they probably yeah. streamline and sophisticate that arrangement a bit. And he does, uh, obviously, you know, he's known for Nick Drake and Radiohead covers. And I think those work well for him. I, I don't know, in a sense, because he's every now and then hit a blind alley, but, but his approach to fractionalizing and, and splintering the music and reconstituating it means that simpler harmonic materials can work for him on a good day. He doesn't need a real harmonic matrix. And I did kind of poke around some of the stuff you've given me by Brad over the years. Some of his really early stuff is one where he's really just doing some burning bebop, you know, where he's young yeah. enough that he's showing people, okay, I can play these changes really fucking fast and really fleetly. Yeah. And he, of course, plays fleetly as he goes on, but he's not necessarily doing those kind of showpiece 
bebop repertoire tunes anymore. It's more in the service of his take. So yeah, I felt like this was a young Brad. He's probably a little too young to play. I uh, blame it on my youth. It turns out there's a weird yeah. song that if you're actually singing that song, it helps to be 40 or older. It's weird. Exactly. Exactly. But, you know, so it's there. He, I don't know if he's got that final step, the, the final gift that Evans did of that emotional translucency, but he's 90% there. And of course, what he has, this kind of relentless intellectual delving into a tune's pieces that Evans, I think, ultimately didn't vibe to. I mean, he was more of a just straight-down romanticist. And there's always the analytical uh, spirit that hovers over Brad's stuff. But yeah, this is a more, I think it's a little bit more traditional. It's a little bit more, you can sense his influences are more clearly on his sleeve now than they would be later. As he grew into his Bradley ways, as the Meldalverse expanded, here we're kind of, it's still young Brad, it's still Brad. I think you can say, you know, I hear some Evans here. I hear some Jared here. And being Brad, he arches his back and gets angry about this and it becomes more and more Bradley as he goes on. And so I think by volume three, I was kind of hard for us to find any Evans. Yeah. It's, it's by the way, Bradford, not Bradley. More, more Bradford. I, I, Oh my God. I, I don't want to imagine what (laughs) I'm trying to find an adverb or an adjective for the, the being in the Meldalverse, which I think is we, we have to talk about in the future. I think we have to say, uh, I think we have to say Meldovian. Meldovian. Thank you. It's Meldovian. He's no, full of Bradosity. He's, yeah. So, yeah, I mean, obviously well, a major position, but he's still yeah. a little young here, as great as it is. Well, I got a couple of things. I got a couple of things to say, a couple of points to make in response to some of this. So we haven't talked about the originals here. I do think he's a, a good composer of originals, but I don't remember any of the melodies except perhaps Lament for Linus, which I like quite a bit, but they're hard to that's... characterize. Is is this what? the Linus from Peanuts, or is this like some? No, I don't. I think I think it's something else. I've read something somewhere about it, but he has no liner notes in this one. But that's the second thing I wanted to tell you about. I wanted to read for you the only thing in the liner notes, and I think this has to be from Brad, and he's signaling very early where his allegiance lies, right? So the only thing in the liner notes on this one is a sonnet from Rilke, and <laughs> everyone knows about, or if they don't, they will now. His obsession with German romanticism and he's actually sort of learned German apparently and he's very sort of deep into all of this you know and when you read the later liner notes he's name checking Nietzsche and Schopenhauer and God knows who else but he's included from the sonnets to Orpheus by Reina Maria Rilke a translation of sonnet three of book one and I just wanted to read it to you and then <laughs> reflect on it for a second because, because I think he's actually signaling what his interests are by putting this in here. I mean, he's telling you what he's about, right? So the sonnet reads, we all know the story of Orpheus, right? The guy who went to hell to get his wife back, great musical player. When he was leaving hell, he turned back and looked at his wife who wasn't supposed to and they took her away, blah, blah, blah. But like a divinely inspired musician, right? So this is a sonnet to Orpheus. A god can do it. But will you tell me how a man can penetrate through the lyre's strings? Our mind is split, and at the shadowed crossing of heart roads there is no temple for Apollo. Song, as you have taught it, is not desire, not wooing any grace that can be achieved. Song is reality, simple for a god. But when can we be real? When does he pour the earth, the stars, into us? Young man, it is not your loving, even if your mouth was forced wide open by your own voice. Learn to forget that passionate music. It will end. True singing is a different breath, about nothing, a gust inside the god, a wind. 
And so you were saying that he has 90% or whatever of Evans' romanticism and lyricism. I think actually he distrusts it. I think he is he thinks it's suspect. He thinks that he thinks that prettiness for the sake of prettiness is dangerous. And it's a position, it's actually sort of an ethical aesthetic position he's taken to kind of resist purely pretty playing and aim for something that he thinks of as higher or more difficult to achieve. I and mean, I think he's signal that, signaling that interest as early as here. And that's why, I mean, that sort of governs, I think, the way in which he reconfigures songs, where he takes melodies, familiar melodies, compelling melodies by the Beatles or whoever else, and dissects them, takes them apart, and re- puts them back together again in different ways. And the aim at, I guess, transcending beauty or transcending mere beauty, I don't know. I mean, maybe it's a sterile academic exercise, but it's thoughtful and I think it's planned. I don't think it's accidental. I don't think that he's, I don't think that this is some sort of frivolous exercise on his part. I think he really does, he wants to do more than than merely feel or please people through playing what may seem achingly felt even though he can do that i think he's he's hoping for trying to do something else or something more now we can disagree about whether that's worthwhile right maybe that's an empty idealistic gesture but i do think it's a thought out gesture i I do think it's planned and i think even as early as this album he's signaling that that's kind of what he's about that he doesn't want to just be pretty well but he's i do feel like this record he is making more attempts in that direction than he does later i mean there is a little more sentiment here i've just got one thing to say to you brad feelings nothing more Oh, uh, maybe they just really hated that song as a kid, and this is what. What well, there are, you. How we talked you. before I about. He, I hope he, I hope he plays like I hope he and the trio play feelings and, and reconfigure sort of <laughs> it. And, you know, That'd be great. He channels Cecil Taylor and serves as the Cecil Taylor version of feelings. That would be or awesome. Or just start singing it in a, in a in a cocktail bar. Yeah, we talked. There are artists. I feel like Sun Ra to some degree, Sam Rivers to some degree that that you almost feel like are otherworldly. They're so purely musical, but don't necessarily connect right. with you emotionally or viscerally that their their work is kind of floating free of some of the contacts that we make with other players' work. You know, you've got like a Ben Webster where you might transcribe what he's doing and it's, it's barely any notes at all. And it's, it's just a very simple restating of a melody, but somehow it's all in the way he delivers it, the breath and the, the thoughtfulness of the phrasing. And you've got like a Sam Rivers who seems a bit relentless at times. He's so intellectual. It's, it's so purely about sound, so purely about structure. There isn't a lot of pillowiness or warmth there or mercy in a sense, or the human condition and the fact that we're all rotting meat here, crawling across the planet, trying to make sense of our, our destinies. And maybe we're all spirit. Maybe we're all mind. And so, yeah, I, absolutely. I mean, that, that is a great poem to think about in conjunction with what, what Meldow does. At the same time, I do think that in certain places, you know, the meditative, the cyclical, uh, the highway rider stuff, I mean, there, there's a vibe to that stuff. It is not the vibe yeah. of I fall in love too easily. It's not the great American songbook, meditative, yeah. romantic, wistful feeling. It, it is a little bit, it's a little bit rockier. It's a little bit more based in, I don't know, the feeling you might get from a seventies art rock album, but it's there. And at the same time, yeah, he picks people like Nick Drake and Radiohead, really deeply fucking alienated artist, right? He's not doing Aretha Franklin. He's not doing right. Melissa L. Etheridge. You know, he's picking artists who, to some degree, are almost seems almost psychotically removed from ordinary human experience. Certainly in the case of Radiohead, where I feel like 
Thom York is not human in any way that I understand. He's he's fascinating musically, but he is so far behind glass yeah. and so far off the planet's orbit that you can't connect to him as a person-to-person kind of thing. And to some degree, by the end, Drake is certainly getting there, right? He's If you listen to uh, Pink Moon, it, it's, wow, he is he's an alienated motherfucker. So... Yeah, here I do feel like he is still growing into the the, the bradosity that he would achieve later, but it's definitely worth hearing as a step in that development, and I do think it was eye-opening to me because I did kind of feel like people that were talking about Bill Evans, from my perspective, having heard three through five, were just idiots. And having heard this, I'm like, right. okay, well, that wasn't idiotic to say. It was off the mark. If you'd right. read the, If you read the sonnet, you'd realize this is not where he's headed. But yeah. he's beginning from that place and from that Jarrett place and then finding himself as he goes on. And yeah, a great tradition, right? There's like the yeah. state of the tenor with Joe Henderson. and Another thing to put. Yeah, yeah. saxophone colossus yeah. with Sonny Rollins, the art of the trio. The know? art of the trio. <laughs> there you go. The other thing I think that's worth saying about him is he has this reputation for being monomaniacal, right? And yet he is a willing and very able sideman who's able to play in a variety of idioms. So he's done a couple of albums where he's accompanied classical singers. Ozzy Osbourne? Uh, Sophie Van Otter, Sophie Van Otter, blah, 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 and Renee Fleming. Oh, there he's you go. He's accompanied them. He's, he's done a couple of albums where he's done classical accompaniment, which makes perfect sense, right? He can cry. He's, he seems competent at crossing over. He's done, and I swear I want to hear this somewhere, apparently he composed a kind of orchestration called, like, I, you're going to laugh your ass off, but this ought to tell you something about Maldell you didn't know. He's composed and has performed, I guess, in Europe, something called the Brady Bunch Meditations or something. <laughs> oh, God. <laughs> I'm serious. Now, you'd never think that, right? So there's that. And then he's been a sideman principally with Joshua Redman, but Redman's got Funk to Burn, and Maldow's played on a number of those albums. He's played with Charles Lloyd in an altogether sort of ECM context, and he's played with, with uh, Pat yeah. Methuen. Yeah, he played with Lee Conan. Very dry, very, very and dry he- stuff, yeah. Exactly, and he played with the Methaney. So he's not someone. It's it's not like you know we talked about. It's when Ellington played with other people. He kind of subverted them and bent them to his will. And Meldow's you know <laughs> Meldow's a team yeah. player. You don't hear Meldow on Josh Redman albums turning into a Meldow album. He's playing Josh Redman stuff, and he plays in these other settings. We played on Pilgrimage. He fits into that Michael Brecker bag. He just he's, he's right at home with that. So he can do a lot of different stuff. He's not he's not monolithic. He's not monomaniacal, except perhaps in the liner notes, which really are studies in assholery, but still Still he's smarter than Stanley. <laughs> he's smarter than Stanley. I'll take him any day over Stanley Crouch. So, you know, he's got that quote for him. Oh man, so, yeah, yeah. I, I plus, forgot. Oh. Yeah, I not looked at the liner notes for a while of any Brad Meldow releases, and I probably will continue not to look at them for a while longer. But yeah, he's he ah, is a uh, so much fun. <laughs> yeah, yeah, he's a little grad school stuff going on there. Yeah, it's an interesting recording to see where he comes from, and then of course he does flower more. As I've complained before, I think the thing is he's almost too self-effacing. As a sideman, sometimes it's a little hard to tell what he's, mm. other than extraordinary competence he's bringing to the sessions. I mean, he's he's good. If you listen to something like our thing with Joe Henderson, where, where Andrew Hill's there, there's just a little flavor of Hill. He's playing very right. much in the, in the mainstream hard bop context, but there's little Hillisms creep in. And I think he's effective there. Sometimes I feel like it's a little hard to find Meldow's fingerprint when he's with these other artists and these other projects. 
And of course, it's just all over the place. He's very much the auteur when he's doing his trio stuff or his, his self-led projects. I do think Walking Shadows, we talked about a while back with Josh Redman. There, I felt like at times he was kind of bending Josh a little bit over, not as much as, as, as right. some of the artists you, you cite there. But you know, he's not Ellington, yeah. not Ellington, just absolutely saying, "Come into my world," because that's the only world that exists. But it, it, there was some influence there. But yeah, he's one of the major figures, and I never. I don't always love everything he does, but I always want to hear it, right? I mean, you can't, you don't want to miss oh, yeah. something that he's doing. He's, he's no, that he's, caliber. He's, not, he's essential. There are certain players who you're like, oh, they have a new album. I, I need to track that down at some point. Ernie, you know? I'm like every third, every fourth. Hmm? Watts is great. Ernie Watts, you know, the fourth, okay, you know, I can skip a couple. I come in another one. Yeah, he's not one of the great conceptualists. Melda, you want to hear pretty much everything he does to find out what the guy's up to, right? Yeah. So, we did another yes. one. We'll yeah, do more in the future. In. This is going to continue to be the broadcast in many ways. And that's okay. You know, we, we, we've got a special place. Yay! A special place in our heart. <sighs> I'm just a little boy. So, yeah, I've listened to some pop lately. The thing I've listened to that I think you might find the most interesting, I don't know if you've heard of her, is Janella Monet. Uh, Janelle Monet, have you heard of her? God, the name seems familiar, but I, I have not heard of music now. She's this sort of hip-hop chica who's done this concept album called, sort of a two-part album called Arch Android. Oh, is she like an African-American artist who's like kind of sci-fi? Yeah, and I feel it's like I've read about her in the New York to, Times. Yeah, okay. It alludes to Metropolis and stuff. And here's the thing about her: so it's got all these weird. It's got its, it's hip hop moments, but she can sing. She can flat out sing. She's got a rock Jones. So some of the songs have like a rock feel, and she growls. It's not just pure sheen hip hop blues nattering it's not neo soul she actually kind of like gets down and dirty and just as a concept album some of the numbers are really clever and i've only listened to it a couple of times but i'm like wow this is it's sort of a hip-hop slash rock slash i don't know neo soul concept album about robots in the future okay i'm cool <laughs> with that that sounds it's it's pretty fucking good and really good melodies so yeah definitely look into that if you get a chance there's some very fun stuff on there, I think. So she's uh, so there's that. So that's what I've been listening to lately. I like yeah. it quite a bit. I need to get deeper into it. There must be, yeah. I feel like I've read reviews of her stuff, and she sounded interesting to me. I've never heard her stuff, so I'll have to try to look it up. I don't have anything real spectacular. We queued up 11 tracks of whack by Becker of Becker and oh, Feck yeah. and Steely Dan fame. And I think the main thing to say about that album is how surprisingly good it is given how surprisingly awful a singer Becker is, yeah, it really teaches you, in terms of that duo, that Becker was the kind of oblique, cynical, dark side of the duo. And in fact, you know, we yes. kind of can tell from the Nightfly and others had the, more of the sentimental, humanist side of the combo. So, yeah, Becker, you cannot beat Junkie Girl... Yeah, babe, mm -hmm. it's a fucked up world, so be cool, my little junkie girl, is a chorus, you know? And eventually she yeah. dies of an overdose. There's so an 11 of... tracks of Whack, the one with Uncle whatever. Uh, there's a song on there about... Uh, oh, yeah. I just had a cute... Oh, it's really... Yeah, I, I listened to it recently, so it's it's been in my mind. 
Yeah, go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. You've got, you've got to love the Dan, but 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 if you do, it tells you a lot about how that group worked, and it is in itself again surprisingly successful, given that Becker as a singer is God. Fagan as a singer isn't that great, but Becker as a singer is an extraordinary limited human being. A quick revisit. I was talking about my bloody Valentine's Loveless. Having heard it a couple more times, I don't know that it's going to stick with me as much as I thought it might. My guess is it was more important. You know, maybe if you grew up, that was one of your big albums. As a young person, you'd love it more than I've ended up loving it. My God, Smashing Pumpkin, so indebted to so much of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. And yeah, just wow. I guess that the people that kind of explored the sound that, that Bloody Valentine had laid out, maybe were able to do enough more with it that I've liked their stuff long term better. And then finally, I've still not really listened to To Be Kind by Swans in the depth that it deserves. I'm not sure I'm putting that in quotation marks, deserves. But I feel like I've heard enough of it to say that it's a little sillier than Seer. There's one track that is as long as a Beatles album, Revolver, 34-minute track. And it's he's speaking lots of French and rolling his R's, and it's... It's getting into almost <laughs> self-parody territory. I don't know. It's like, ah, la ventura, you know. And, and some of it's just mumbling in foreign languages. It, it it seems to be getting a little closer to a kind of Nine Inch Nails or Goblin place where there's maybe just a hint of, of silliness and self-parody. That said, some of the tracks are very strong. And there's one that he's... He just keeps insisting in the strange voice of what seems like a, to be rude about a disabled child. I'm just a boy. I mean, really, it's like he's channeling some kind of other voice. And it's based on a very swampy blues. And at times, interspersed with him singing, there's just laughter. They just have people laughing in the middle, like they're, they're, they're cut in, which is an extremely hmm. eerie feeling to it. It's just like just really alienating and strange. Just a little boy for Chester Burnett. And so that's the second second tune on it. So it's good. There's some really high points to it. But I'd say that if you're just going to get one two-hour mind-smashing album by Swans, I'd go with Seer in terms of the purity of what they're after. This is a lot of fun, but there are moments where you're just kind of chuckling into your sleeve. And at the same time, I, I'm, I'm just a just a little boy is probably just more mainstream fun than anything off Seer. So I, I can imagine that getting play on an alternative radio. I mean, it, it's it's a lot of fun. It is just you know I'm just a little boy. I need love. You know, he's just I, I I can't even quite capture the voice he's singing in, but it is bizarre. So that's what I've been listening to. Nothing nothing real uh, urgent. Nothing real new. So uh, hopefully something more interesting flows to the surface next time. And that concludes episode 60 of the Jazz Bastard podcast. As always, you can reach us at mike at jazzbastard.com and pat at jazzbastard.com. You can download the podcast from iTunes and from our website at www.jazzbastard.com. Tune in next week when we explore four albums produced by recently departed producer Oren Keep News. We'll discuss works by Randy Weston, Thelonious Monk, Joe Henderson, and Bobby Hutcherson. Till then, take care.
just out of the blue, I should mention, I picked up recently Ellington's Live at the Whitney. I don't know why I did this, but I got it. And I just I have to mention this because we always talk about how great people are and stuff. I would like to talk about how bad this album is, just for one <laughs> second. This is late Ellington. And I, I think I got it because I've read somewhere something positive about it. Oh, my God, I'd like to find that person and beat them to death with their own arm. What the fuck? <laughs> this is a miserable date. It's Ellington very late in his career. He's one or two years away from death. And apparently a lot of these late events, he would show up and he would sometimes bring a bass player and a drummer. So he does have them on this occasion. And so he's playing jazz at the Whitney, right? And it's sort of an impromptu thing. I think he sort of was scheduled and just sort of came and showed up. And for the first five numbers, it doesn't even sound like his hands are warmed up. Like he didn't do anything to get ready to play. It's terrible. It's really bad. Have you ever heard it? I'm looking kind of, I remember Many, many years ago, back when Tower Records existed, I passed up a CD of At the Ball Mosque. I obsessed about it for years. I finally got it as an LP, and it turned out to be one of my favorite of his weird populist projects. And I kind of made a rule for myself, you know, always buy Ellington if you can. That said, that rule can take you wrong. I mean, he he recorded prolifically. There's just a lot of Ellingtonia out there, and oh, some of yeah, it is really man. tepid and uninspired. And it can be shocking how yeah. yeah. He opens after his little opening remarks, he starts with a a medley, and it's like he just wants to get this shit out of the way. So the medley is Black and Tan Fantasy, Prelude to a Kiss, Do Nothing Till You'll Hear From Me, and Caravan. He medleys them in a three-minute number, and he misses so many fucking notes. He wrote the damn songs, and I don't care if he is 70. Well, He's missing most of the notes. He wrote some of the songs. Yeah, we talked about that. Ellington was a great yeah, okay, magpie. Okay. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, dude, you should have warmed up before you came out on stage. Now, by about the sixth or seventh number, about halfway through the concert, he kind of gets his legs underneath him. He plays Soda Fountain Rag, which he says is the first song he ever wrote. Right. And notably, he plays about one minute of it, and he's like, right, now he says, now I have to stop. I can't play what comes next. But you finally hear him. He's almost warmed up. And then he yeah. brings the drummer and the bass player out. And then what follows is like a half an hour of competent Ellington. But man, it's bad. I mean, I was shocked at how bad it was. I was mad that I got it. I was like, what mm. the hell? So anyway, I just had to go on record here, just bitch about uh, we both love Duke. He's God. He's everything. But even Homer nods. Even Homer sleeps. And not everything Ellington did was gold. And he certainly, no one did him any favors by recording that date and, and then and putting it out it. there. Because yeah. it is, yeah, it is not, it is not Ellington you want to hear. It's not good.